Well, hello church, if you would, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Many of you know we are finishing today, and I promise we are finishing today, uh, a series on the Lord's Supper. It's the third week, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I will read from verse 17 to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I delivered from the Lord what I also, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. And so, Father, um, this is your word through Paul to the church in Corinth and to all the churches of Christ for the last 2,000 years. Lord, You've given a final word on the Lord's Supper here. And we need to understand it. We need to not misunderstand it. And so we ask our Counselor, the Holy Spirit that You have given us, who is our great Teacher, to give us understanding of these things. Pray You illuminate and make clear this text. And make clear for us how to come to the supper. How to eat in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
And so, Father, we ask You for these things so that we can get the full benefit and blessing of this supper as Your church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is, uh, again, the final week on this series on the Lord's Supper. And I I really do hope that uh, we'll come to this table in a very different way than we have ever uh, up until this point that the Lord will truly work in us. Uh, let, me, let me start by saying, uh, talking about this in this way. One of the first things that people uh, notice when they come to our church is that after the sermon, uh, we don't do an altar call or an invitation. And instead, after the sermon, we immediately come to the table. And so sometimes people ask the question, why, doesn't, uh, why don't you as a church do an altar call? And, and I always respond, we do. It's called the Lord's Supper. Uh, we do it every week. Uh, we always give an altar call. We would never do a service without giving an altar call. Um, and so I want to explain that from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, what I mean by that, what I think Paul means by that, and I think Jesus instituted this supper to be uh, his church's altar call, if we could call it that. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. I need to kind of, I, I'm, I'm using this word altar call, I need to unpack this slightly. Uh, some of you may remember back in 2017, we actually did a series called uh, The Modern Altar Call and Easy Believism and did about seven weeks on this topic We obviously don't have time to to get into a lot of that right now, but here's what I think we need to remember uh, about the altar call. Uh, This is an invention of the 1950s. We could go back earlier into Charles Finney and the the Second Great Awakening, and we could see kind of the seeds of the uh, modern altar call there. Uh, And and I'm pointing out the Second Great Awakening because it's unlike the First Great Awakening in America where God used the English uh, Puritans through true gospel preaching and the Spirit of God did miraculous works of revival all over, all over this country, the Second Great Awakening was different. And although the, I wouldn't say the Lord didn't work, he's, many false things were happening, many unhelpful things were happening. And the Second Great Awakening uh, that was different than the first, one of those was the beginnings of what we would call an altar call. And I'm not saying, uh, please don't hear me saying that God has not used the altar call. Um, I know some of you here would say, I was saved in an altar call. And I would say, no, you were saved in spite of an altar call uh, as you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, God has always saved us only by faith in His Son, uh, not in repeating a certain prayer or walking an aisle uh, when given the opportunity and trying to really mean that. Um, and so, one way to look at this is Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruit. And when you examine the fruit of the modern altar call, it is rotten. Uh, that's why most don't do altar calls in our day. I mean, you'll, it's very hard to find it. Uh, many have abandoned this uh, type of practice and methodology. You won't find it in any Baptist seminary that I'm aware of that they're act- actively teaching this. Uh, most Baptist seminaries at this point are teaching not to do this. 
And so I think that's in large part because some of the people who are most influential in popularizing the modern altar call have talked about the bad fruits that it's produced in the church. So we have Billy Graham who said, if only 10% of the people who made professions of faith at his evangelistic campaigns were truly saved, he would be happy. 10%. Vance Harvner and Shelton Jones, both Baptist ministers, said 70 to 80% of Baptists are lost. Bill Bright, uh, many of you know him with Campus uh, Crusade for Christ in the 1984, he said he believed that over 50% of the 100 million people that were in church in that time uh, were not born again. E.J. Daniels, very popular Baptist evangelist, uh, he helped to really popularize the altar call in the 1950s. He said, I seriously doubt if 50% of all those who name the name of Christ are saved. And then Dr. J. Harold Smith, uh, another famous Southern Baptist, said 50, or I'm sorry, 75% of those that attend church won't make it to heaven. I wouldn't be scared to say 80%. I won't keep going with these quotes, but I, I, I cite those not because all of those men publicly renounced the altar call, uh, but because they were able to identify many bad fruits that it had produced in the church. They may not have made that connection. I make the connection. Many others have made the connection. And these are godly men. These are well-meaning men. I, I don't mean anything harshly toward those who have done these things, uh, but the fruit is not good. And, and many of us know what I'm talking about, know exactly what I'm talking about, because we grew up in, in contexts where we heard every week after the sermon, uh, every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. Uh, it, when the music begins to play softly, you can make your way out from the pew and you can come to the front and we'll have somebody here to pray with you. And in just a few seconds, you can repeat this prayer with them and you can know for certain that you're going to heaven when you die. And we heard that every week. And, and there was oftentimes not a true gospel proclaimed before that type of invitation. Many times there was no call to repentance uh, of sin or faith in Jesus Christ. And what I'm saying, here, here's what I, I don't want to get into all of that so much as to just say, here's, here's what I'm trying to get at. A hundred years ago, you would not have found anything like that in the church. In any church. It just didn't exist. And until the, the tent revival meetings uh, that happened 60 years, 70 years ago, uh, and those began to trickle into the churches. And, and so, uh, what I believe is that when you study Scripture, when, when you look at church history, 100 years and, and backward, 1900 years before that, and you find the church in its healthiest moments, you will find that what followed a sermon was the sacrament or the Lord's Supper, as we might call it, as a way for sinners to respond to Christ, as a way for God's people to respond to Christ. Um, some of you remember a few weeks ago, I tried to argue from Acts uh, chapter 2 that immediately after Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven, sent His Spirit at Pentecost. The church begins to gather. It says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. So 
That's not surprising. Jesus told them to take it. And so a few weeks later, they're taking it. That's not surprising. And then, but what we looked at is 20 years later, when we get to Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says that on the first day of the week, they gathered together. That's the Lord's Day, Sunday. They gathered together to break bread. And that's not have a meal together. That's the Lord's Supper. They're, they're gathering together to take the Lord's Supper. And then it says Paul preached until late into the night. So we know they're, they're probably doing other things as they gather. But they're at least gathering to take the supper and to hear the Word of God taught. And that's 20 years after. So we're 54 AD roughly. Uh, they're continuing to get together every week for the Lord's Supper. Now, why that matters for what we're studying is because Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, it's about 54 AD. Same time as Acts 20. Church is still gathering at that point to take the supper, it looks like, every week because Paul says this. Uh, This is in verse 20 of, of chapter 11. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are taking. When you come together, he's assuming, right? That sounds like an assumption. When you get together and, the, and you think you're taking the supper, you're not taking the supper because then he's going to address all the unbiblical things that they're doing and the things that are wrong, but they think they're coming together to take the supper. And, and I wouldn't say that a church is in outright sin or anything like that if they don't take it every week. I'm just pointing out it looks like the early church was quite devoted to taking this regularly uh, as they were devoted to the Word of God. And, and so what I want to argue from this text is give us three reasons why the Lord's Supper is the church's altar call or should be treated uh, like an altar call. And so let me give us the first reason. Uh, the Lord's Supper is our altar call because it is a call for sinners to come to Christ. It's a call for sinners to come to Christ. Now again, we could go back into what we we discussed last week in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, uh, that when we come to the table, we're not just thinking right thoughts about Jesus' body and blood. That's not all that's happening here. Right? It's not just a memorial. Something more is going on uh, at this table. Paul uses the word communion. Participation in the body and blood of Christ. So there's some fellowship happening with Christ. He uses the word koinonia. There's fellowship with Christ happening at the table as God's people take it in faith. And I brought up last week how there's mystery here. Just like when I read my Bible, and again this, uh, this morning, open my Bible, uh, get on my knees to pray, and I would not say, oh Lord, uh, I just love thinking about your word. I would say, I am spending time with the Lord. I'm with Him. Do I understand how relationally I'm with the Lord when He's in heaven and I'm on earth? No, there's mystery there, but I believe that I'm with the Lord as I'm receiving His Word by faith and communing with Him. And I said last week, something like that is happening at the table. Here's what I want to emphasize right now. The only people that come to the table to commune with Christ in that way are sinners. They're sinners. Who else would He have made the table for? Who else could, who else could come up here and take it? I mean, 
But, but think of it this way. When Jesus in his earthly ministry, who did he get uh, accused of eating and drinking with? Sinners. He wasn't ashamed to eat with sinners, is what I'm saying. And now he's in heaven, and he's, and he's given us this meal to eat with him. Do you think he's now ashamed to eat with sinners? He's not ashamed to eat with sinners. He gave the meal to those who are still sinning. Who are the only people of his, the only saints, the only Christians who are perfect? Where are they? We just sang about it. They're the victorious church in heaven. They're the perfected ones. Who are the ones here that have to come take the supper? The imperfect ones, the ones that aren't fully sanctified, that still wrestle with sin all week long. That's the only ones that are able to come take the supper. And, and I'm not just assuming that, it's in the text. So Luke twenty two nineteen, for example, this is my body which is for you. Who's the you? Sinners. Matthew 26, Jesus says, uh, it says he took the cup when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Who's the them? Sinners. Saying, drink of it all of you, who's that? Sinners. For this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Sin of who? Sinners. Christ intended sinners to come and eat with him at the supper. This table belongs to sinners. I love the picture of a patriarchal father sitting at the head of his table with his family, eating a meal. And and you think about Christ. Okay, if he's eating with us, if we're eating with Christ, but he's not in this room, where is he seating? Where is he sitting? He's enthroned in heaven. Our patriarchal father is sitting at the table with us when we take the Lord's Supper, but he's sitting enthroned in heaven, which means he's sitting in a throne of grace, which means this table is a table of grace for sinners. For sinners. Now, here's my qualification that some of you are hoping I'll get to. Um, All sinners aren't the same. There's two types of sinners that come to this table. That's what the text says at least. Let me make this clear. It says there are sinners who eat and drink judgment on themselves and there are sinners who receive this as a blessing. And those two words are really important. I'll let it lead us to our second point. That the Lord's Supper is an altar call because it brings blessing and judgment. The Lord's Supper brings both blessing and judgment depending on how we treat Christ. And before I explain that, let me just make sure we see Paul using both these words. I'm not coming up with these words. These are Paul's words, the Spirit's words. So 1 Corinthians 10.16, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation of the body and blood of the Lord? So that's real sinners receiving the supper as a blessing. Uh, That is one way that a sinner could come. The other is 1 Corinthians 11.29. It says that there are some who are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. Which is explained in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And the question that is in all of our minds right now, if, any, if you're paying attention, is how do I not be that person? How do I not eat and drink judgment on myself? And um, let me give you the Second London Baptist Confession's answer to that question because I think they're right and I think it's helpful and succinct how they answer this. It says, All ignorant and ungodly people who are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ are thus unworthy of the Lord's table. As long as they remain in this condition, they cannot partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted to the Lord's table without committing a great sin against Christ. Those who receive the supper unworthily, there's Paul's word, are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment on themselves. So I'm going to unpack that, but let's start with the two uh, categories they give. There are some who are ignorant. That's what would what would it mean to come to the table and be ignorant? Uh, it would mean that you don't know what this is. You don't know the gospel. You don't know about the body and blood of Christ to forgive your sins. You've never received that by faith. That person, that person who's ignorant of the gospel, should not come down and take the supper lest they take it in an unworthy manner. The other category is ungodly. This could be not just a, a non-believer, but this could be someone who is a professing believer, but refusing to repent of sin and wants to continue in a lifestyle of sin. I think that's what verse 27 means when it says, eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so what do we do? to avoid eating and drinking judgment on ourselves, Paul tells us, he says, examine yourself. Examine. Let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So the heart of God is that we all come, but that we come after examining uh, ourselves. So, how do we do that? And let me give you a little case study, okay? I'm going to make up a a name here. Let's just say that Mike uh, is sitting out here every week and Mike is trying to examine himself before he comes down so that the supper is a blessing for him and not judgment. So Mike, uh, here's the sermon. We say, okay, we're about to take the supper, take a few minutes. And then Mike is... Uh, quickly, quickly, because he knows he doesn't have much time before everybody gets up and starts walking down, so he's quickly trying to think through all the bad things he did that week. Oh, gosh, I did that, I said this, I shouldn't have done this again, I, I said I wasn't going to do that, and then I did it again. I looked at this, I said this, I argued with my wife four or five times this week, I was angry at the kids almost every day at some point. Kick the cat. And so, by the time he's thinking of all this, not only has he inflicted all sorts of guilt upon himself, but he's concluded, I'm the last one. Everybody's already come up here. I'm just going to sit it out this week. I don't want to eat and drink judgment on myself. And so he stays in the seat, doesn't come up to the table. The next week, though, he's sitting there again. He goes, okay, I have a chance. And 
as he prepares to examine himself, he, he thinks, well, I'm already feeling better. I've done better than last week. I remember me and my wife didn't argue at all. I didn't look at much on the internet. I shouldn't have. And, um, and, and I, I, I was much more patient with the kids. And, and uh, I didn't kick the cat. And so <laughs> he comes up happily uh, with some sort of zeal almost and feels very worthy. Now, listen, I submit to you that either Mike is not a Christian or that he doesn't know where his worth comes from because he is very much basing his worth on his own ability to obey God 30% better than the last week. Is that really what Paul is dealing with here? Just up your percentage a little bit from where you were last week and then you're worthy and... Is this, I don't, I don't think at all that's what Paul is saying. We aren't worthy to come to the table on our good weeks and unworthy on our bad weeks. We're not worthy to come to the table because we score a little higher morally than we did the previous week. We're worthy to come to the table. Why, church? Christ, His finished work on our behalf is our worthiness to come to the table. And the only reason a, a, a Christian who believes that should not come to the table is if our life is absolutely contradicting it to the point where we're saying, I'm not surrendering to Christ. I will continue in sin. That is a dangerous place to be. And some Christians in the church in Corinth had gotten to that point. And so they were being disciplined from the Lord. Some were getting sick. Some were getting ill. Some were dying. This is God's discipline on those He loves. And so there's a time for self-examination because uh, Christians' hearts can get to a point where we're unrepentant. That doesn't even mean in every area of our life, but there could be pockets of our life that we say, on this issue and on this issue, I will not obey the Lord. And that's a dangerous thing. So we should examine. But here's, here's what I would ask, okay? This is my pastoral plea, and I think Paul would agree with me with how he's instructing this church. You don't have to examine yourself five seconds before you walk up the aisle to come get this, okay? My advice would be examine yourself all through the week. Keep short tabs on your sin. Confess things as you know you've committed them against the Lord. Deal, deal with that. Examine yourself all week long. And then if some, by, for some reason you forget, we have a time of confession built into the service so that you can think about your sin at that moment. That's why we have that moment. Why? So that when we go to take the Lord's Supper, you're not sitting there running through really quick trying to remember all the sin you might not have confessed or repented of. We need, to self, we need to examine ourselves. It doesn't have to be five seconds before you come to the table. Because what did Christ give us this table and tell us to do? Do this in remembrance of me. Remember the first sermon? Uh, our minds need to be largely upon Christ as we come here. Now, let me say something else about repentance. Because I know uh, this is a question lingering in the minds of many. How do I actually know if I'm repentant or not? Because if, if only those who are repentant are to come to the table, 
How do I know? And I would, I would first say, you know, if you're a Christian. You do. You know. The Spirit brings to mind that if there's any area you're not repentant, I do think you know. Um, you know if you hate your sin and if you plan to continue to live in it or not. However, uh, I will acknowledge who can know the heart, the Bible says. Can any of us truly know our hearts at that depth? No. So there is some measure in which we don't really know every little pocket of our heart. And so what I would say to that person is, and that probably applies to most of us every week, you should come to the supper because the supper is a means of grace to lead you to repentance, to help you in your repentance. The kindness of the Lord here, what? Leads us to repentance. As we remember the gospel and come down, I believe the Lord helps our hearts to be better at repenting. And I don't think at all it falls in this category of eating and drinking judgment on yourself. I think that's only for those who are planning and plotting ongoing sin and refuse to live for Christ. So, uh, what I'm saying is this table is not, uh, you, you shouldn't not come here because you had a bad week and a sensitive conscience. You should not come here if you are refusing uh, to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and live for Him. And I think that's what Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10.21 gets at. So I, I read this last week. I'm going to remind us again. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? So, here's why I'm, I'm rounding about, coming about, back to why we believe this is an altar call. Because every week it forced, uh, forces a decision. Which cup will you drink? The cup of the Lord or the cup of demons? You can't drink both. You can't ride the fence. You can't have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. You can't drink the cup of demons and the cup of the Lord. This is a decisive. These are two different realms, two different things. You can't... Here, now, I'm going to make a parallel here because we don't eat pagan feasts and there's some different contextual things in the Corinthian church. But let me say it like this. You can't look at whatever you look at sexually on the internet and not think that you're participating in some measure in that. And then come here and participate with Christ in some measure and do both of those things as a lifestyle. That's what the Corinthians were trying to do. And, and I, I bring up the issue of sexuality or sexual immorality because Paul does in this passage. He talks about idolatry. He talks about it being demonic. Look at chapter 10, verse 7. The cup of demons is sexual by nature because he says in verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to, uh, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That, play. that word play is translated sexual play. And you go, well, how, you sure? Look at the verse after it. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put 
Christ to the test. Do you see how much of a blessing this is for you, brother, sister? That every week you would be forced to decide the cup of demons, the cup of Christ. Where am I going to participate? Who do I join in with? Which one defines me? This, is, this table is serious. We are drinking uh, into blessing or into judgment. We are eating into that. And, and, and brothers and sisters, I'm not going to water down this text the way it reads. The Lord is jealous. He says, will you provoke me to jealousy? Now, that I've adequately <laughs> scared all of us to death about <laughs> ever coming to the table, uh, let me press this one step further. If, if you are scared to come to the table because you say, I think I'm living in unrepentant sin, then I would, I would say you, you really should be more scared to hear my sermon or a sermon. Because when you go to the Bible, there's actually more warnings about hearing the Word and hardening your heart against it than there are warnings about coming to the table. And so if you, if you decide, I'm going to hear the sermon, but I'm not going to come to the table. Biblically speaking, that makes no sense. You should have not even come to hear the Word. And if you're not coming to hear the Word and you're not coming to the table, why are you coming to church? And if you're not coming to church because you're living in sin, why are you calling yourself a Christian? I'm a big advocate for apostasy. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? What do you mean you're a big advocate for apostasy? I'm not meaning that like I get some sort of joy out of watching people walk away from the Lord. Uh, please don't hear me say that. It grieves me to see someone prove that they are not a believer because they walk away from the Lord and never return. That is a grievous thing. It, it, it breaks our heart at the deepest level. Um, but it dishonors Christ immensely to try to live in both worlds, the world and the church. In Christ and in demons. He's saying you can't do both. And it would be better to not claim Christ's name at all than to try to dine happily with the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. This table, in other words, is a every week for us, every week, choose this day whom you will serve. Call to us. That every week, I mean, this is the first day of the week. Think about how God has ordained this in your life. Every week, at the beginning of the week, the Lord has positioned this time that we're about to come to the table to be a, who am I going to serve this week? The Lord or the enemy? And then you would get to choose the Lord. And that does something that matters and it is a grace from the Lord. And so the Lord's Supper forces this decision. I think one of the greatest blessings of my life these last 14 years is that weekly, I've had to make that decision. Christ or the world? I mean, what a blessing. What a, what a blessing. I mean, this is one of the problems with the modern altar call is you only have to walk the aisle and profess faith in Christ once. Whereas 
We got to do that every week. The problem with the modern altar call is that it comforts someone with salvation because one time they walked the aisle and professed faith in Christ and repented of sin. What I'm saying is the blessing and how this really should be viewed is that we walk that aisle, repent of sin and place our faith in Christ over and over and over until glory. It is a persevering means of grace in our life to keep us in repentance, to keep us near to the Lord and believing His Gospel. So the greatest source of assurance is not uh, that we can have of our salvation is, that not, is not that one time in my life I prayed a prayer and I asked Jesus in my heart and I walked an aisle and I said I believe Him and I repented my sin. One time I did that, therefore I know I'm going to heaven. No, a, you know what a greater assurance is? I did that and I'm continuing to repent of sin and I'm continuing to believe the Gospel. Christ is my only hope. That's a, a far greater assurance of salvation. How do I know my faith was real when I first believed and was saved? I continue to believe. How do I know my repentance when I first repented of sin and was converted? How do I know that was real? Do you continue to repent? And what I'm trying to point out is that the, the supper for us every single week keeps us repenting and believing the Gospel. It is a great grace upon our lives uh, the Puritans used to say that ongoing faith and repentance would seal, it would renew, it would persevere and assure the believer. You see why we would call it a means of grace? It is. It drives us weekly to Christ. It drives us weekly from sin. How many of us in our marriages, you know, I'll be, I'm not the, the pastor that hasn't ever argued with my spouse on the way to church. We've done that. But we did that knowing we've got to come to the table. So we're not letting that linger. We're going to reconcile that before we come to the table. What a blessing. What a blessing in our marriages to have to reconcile issues with our spouses every week. Or, or those of us who are parents and, and have said things to our kids that we know are wrong, and every week before we take the supper, we lean over and say, Mommy and Daddy are a sinner. Forgive us for such and such. What a, what a blessing for, for our families. And, and so, uh, I know this is shocking. Christians sin. Sometimes really horribly. But guess what? Christians don't continue in unrepentant sin. And one of the ways for our church and, and coming to the table every week, one of the ways that we don't continue in unrepentant sin is coming to the table. It's a means of grace that the Lord has given us to persevere our repentance, to persevere our faith, and to give us a deep assurance that we're walking with Christ. And so we come, we remember these judgments, these warnings of judgment, we remember the promises of blessing. And look, here's one of the other promises of blessing. If, uh, if I extended this series, we would talk about this more, but not only are we communing with Christ when we come here, it says that we're communing with His church, with the body of Christ. And I want to point out the supernatural element of that. There's something at a deep spiritual uh, 
unknown, mysterious way that happens when we take this supper every week together. It says we're one body and there's one bread. And it talks about that as being communion in chapter 10. And that we're deepening that union, not only, or that communion, not only with Christ, but with his people. But that plays itself out practically because this is a church ordinance. So stick with me on this. I mentioned a few weeks ago on baptism. Why do we do this in the building? Why do we like that we're doing a baptism in the church? Because it's a church ordinance. That's why we don't want a man baptizing his kids in his bathroom, you know, uh, at the house. It's a church ordinance. It's to be done in the gathering. In the same way, the Lord's Supper. It's a church ordinance. It should be taken together. That's why I don't perform the Lord's Supper at a wedding. That's why, you know, if you're on a cruise and you're with some friends and you're like, hey, you know, there's some wine at the bar. Let's grab that. And there's some cookies let's, or some bread. Let's have the Lord's Supper together. That's not the gathered church. That's not the ideal way to take it. It's a church ordinance. Guys, there's blessing here for us. When you, when you come down to take this supper, one of the things that I love about how we don't pass the plate, although that's not wrong, I just think it's better to get up and walk down here. One of the blessings of doing that is that you have to look at people. You know, when you pass the plate, you can kind of close your eyes and not really look around. You actually have to look at the other people in this room and remember Christ died for their sins, they're repenting, they're believing the gospel, their only hope is Christ. They've got problems like me. And we're all on equal ground. There's no line here for really godly saints or ungodly saints. Separate lines, separate tables. right? We don't, we don't have separate tables for those who are more or less educated or no more or less theology or richer or poor or socioeconomic status is different or different races. Every week when we come down to the table, it's a reminder we are the body of Christ indiscriminately. It's a powerful picture of our union with Christ. So, the Lord's Supper is an altar call because it calls sinners to Christ. It's an altar call because it promises blessing or judgment. And then thirdly and lastly, the Lord's Supper is an altar call because it divides the room. It divides the room, believers and unbelievers. And this is a really unique aspect of the Lord's Supper. And again, Christ built this into it and into the corporate gathering because everybody isn't to come take it. It's not for an unbeliever that comes into the room. And so there's an automatic divide. And you don't notice that divide until the supper. Because we can all sing the songs. When you pray, we can all bow our heads and we can look like we're praying. We can all hear the sermon and sit here. But whenever it comes to the Lord's Supper, not everybody takes it. It it divides the room in that sense. It shows there's a division. Because only Christians are to come to the table and take the supper. And those who are not should refrain. And that's why we say that. And and I know some of y'all are like, man, that is so not seeker-sensitive, Pastor to tell people not to come down and take the table. And I would say, it depends how you define seeker-sensitive. If we actually believe that you could eat and drink judgment on yourself, then it's quite sensitive to the seeker to ask that they not. 
take it. It would be quite unloving and insensitive to tell everybody, just walk up here. No matter who you are or what you do with your life. That would be quite unsensitive. Um, it, is a, it is a loving thing to allow the divide to happen. Uh, Kent, pa- uh, Pastor Kent, a few weeks ago when he was talking about uh, peacemaking in the local church, he mentioned that in church discipline, uh, what is happening, and this is why it's called excommunication, is that someone who uh, once professed faith in Christ because their lifestyle is so contradicts that, that after numerous uh, attempts to reconcile and call them to repentance, they continue to not repent, not want to live for Christ, not repent of that sin, that they would be excommunicated. That's the word. Think about that word. Excommunicated. Excommunion. You can't take communion. You can't come to the table. And I've had people, and you go, man, that just sounds so harsh. I've had people come up to me and say that their church did that to them, and it led to their salvation. They were able to see in ways that they could not see earlier, I do need to repent. I am wrong. They are right. I'm living in rebellion against Christ. Let, let me just... The, the most, this was the most powerful way that this, this landed on me was in 2017. I want to tell you all a story um, about how this division in the room that I'm talking about is a powerful thing. Uh, the conversion of my oldest son which I asked permission if I could share this with y'all the other day. Um, So I think it was in 2017, we were in Woodland Heights, uh, and I was preaching on the church government structures, church polity. That was the really fun, interesting sermon for that, that Sunday. I don't think I explicitly preached the gospel in that sermon um, in any type of evangelistic way. The sermon gets done, and then we all come to the table. And the Lord did something as the church got up and came to the table in my son's heart. And we didn't know this at the time, but after the service, we couldn't find him. We ended up finding him later uh, in kind of a closet, separate room, alone with his Bible and with the Lord, and uh, didn't know what happened. He, He wasn't able to even articulate at that moment what was going on. So on the whole way home, we get home and he's, he just hadn't talked, which is odd. And finally, um, he was able to express what happened and he said when, when the church got up to come to the table, he was sitting there and it hit him. Why am I not? Why, why am I not coming to the table? I must not be a Christian. And if I'm not a Christian, my sins aren't forgiven. Christ has never forgiven me. How can Christ? And the Holy Spirit began to convict him with the reality of his sin and need of Christ. And he went off in that room and got a Bible and began to try to find some promise of salvation, some way to assure himself that he could be forgiven of his sins and he cried out to Christ. And Noah, thank you for allowing me to share that, son. Um, it's been amazing to see how the Holy Spirit, I could share other stories similar to that, about how the Lord uses the Lord's Supper to proclaim the Gospel. Because that's what it says, right? Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you what? Proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. 
How is that proclamation? Who, who's proclaiming? Not me. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. When we take the supper. The church is... I didn't proclaim the gospel to my son that week. Y'all did. All of us did. And the Holy Spirit used that. When we come down here in a moment, we will proclaim together the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of the body and blood of Christ to forgive sinners. And we'll do that together. And it's a powerful thing. I want to end by asking a very important question. I've been holding out on this question all series long because uh, I think it's just very pertinent to us. Um, how do we proclaim the good news when we come here? Now, at one sense you just say, well, we just put it in our mouth and we eat and drink and we believe the gospel. True. What is the best way in which we can proclaim the good news of this table? Somber or celebratory? A, a somber disposition? Oh, look how horrible we are. That Jesus would have to come down and die for our sins and we just wallow in self-pity? Or do we proclaim more rightly the good news of the gospel with a celebratory posture, emotionally? Which one is it? And I would say it's not preference that causes us to pick one of the two. It's exegetical. It's theological. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. This is in verse 23. He says, when he had given thanks. When he had given thanks. And Paul's quoting there uh, G what Jesus said in Luke and Matthew and in Mark. And it's the, same, it's the word we get Eucharist from, that, the root word there. Uh, it means it's from Greek thanksgiving. And I'm not going to try to redeem that word from Catholicism today. <laughs> um, but what Paul is pulling out of Jesus' use of the Greek word there is the word thanksgiving. It's a thanksgiving meal. In fact, Jesus says it twice. It says before the supper, he gave thanks before uh, the bread, and then he gave thanks later after the bread when he was taking up the cup. He gave thanks twice before and after the drink and the bread. I don't know how you read that. That looks to me like celebratory. Luke 22 well, let me, let me say this, because I, I answered this. I, I'm not going to assume that everybody remembers everything I preach up here. Uh, but I asked and posed this question a few months ago regarding the Lord's Supper. Is it celebratory? Is it somber? Which one is it? And I gave a phrase that I hope sticks in our minds because I think it really gets at this. Rejoice with trembling. So if someone said, really, how, should, how do we proclaim this? I would say you rejoice with trembling you tremble because God had to kill His only Son to forgive your sins. How do you not tremble at that? But you rejoice because God had to kill His only Son to forgive your sins, and He forgave your sins. And how can you not rejoice at that? Look, look, look lastly at Luke 22.15. He said, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's significant. Then he took a cup when he had given thanks. He said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God. So he's used that phrase, kingdom of God, twice. 
And he's given thanks in both of these. So Christ is not saying feel bad about your sins at the supper. He uses this phrase, fruit of the vine. Which you say wine, or we think it's permissible to take grape juice. It's fruit of the vine. Now, interestingly, wine, in Scripture, do a little word study on that. Many times, wine is connected with joy. Wine is connected with celebration. Especially when it's in the context of the kingdom. That future kingdom. Those those aren't unrelated terms. It isn't insignificant that Jesus' first miracle was what? Turning water to wine. At a what? A funeral? Where everybody's sad? No. A wedding. A celebratory time. These are not insignificant details connected to the Lord's Supper, and I think they show us the fruit of the vine. Yes, it represents the blood of Christ. At another level, the fruit of the vine, or the drink, is connected to the coming of His messianic kingdom. And so whether you believe that His kingdom is already and not yet fully, or whether you say the kingdom has come, it doesn't matter. It's still celebratory. Because we're in the kingdom either way. Christ has set up His kingdom. He has given us a meal for His kingdom that pictures His future kingdom. Guys, here's what I'm getting at. When we come to the supper, there is a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to let the weight of some of that fall on you. I get it. Overwhelmingly, this should be celebratory. The, the posture of us walking up here, looking around at each, each other, it should be one of amazement. Lord, You saved us sinners. We know who we are. That Your blood would cleanse us from sin. This should be a, a celebratory meal. And so I'll say no more. Um, the warnings for those who shouldn't come, I already gave those. Uh, the blessings for those who should Uh, I've given those. Let's take some time. If you would, just think for a moment to yourself on these things. As you're ready, uh, let's come. Let's give thanks. And let's celebrate uh, what the Lord has done. Father, Lord, we are so grateful that You have built into our lives and into the life of Your church a meal with You. A meal with with You, and with the people we'll spend eternity with, our true family. And so, Father, we pray that we would believe that Your body and blood have forgiven us of all of our sins and that that would provoke in us gratitude, thankfulness, an overwhelming sense of I am loved in Christ. And this coming week, I intend to live for His glory. Father, would You do that in our hearts? Would You renew that in us every week? Father, change us at the table as we dine with You by faith. And as we proclaim this until You come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a few moments.